I remember when I was 15 years old, there was, um, there was an event coming up just a few months uh, in, in our future there. And, and in my family, we had been talking about that event. And um, my dad was in the process of writing a book. Um, he, he's, he's a writer. He's a reader. It, it's two of the things that I got from him that I love. I love to read. I love to write. And he had written what was his first book. And uh, if you've ever done anything like that, maybe you've written a book or written some type of project, or maybe it's a project you've been working on at work or something that you've compiled, something that you've done as a family, you know that you spend a lot of time working on it, a lot of time really accomplishing this thing. And when you get to the end of it, there's, there's obviously a sense of, of nervousness about it, but there is this need to hand that thing off. There's this need to kind of conclude that project. And, and you know, in, in this case, he had written a book, he had written it with the idea that somebody was going to read it. And so there was a need then to take that book and get it to the publisher and get it printed and get this thing out there so that people could read it. But we had this thing coming up. There was, there was this event in, 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 in the future for us just a couple months ahead. And, and there was some talk about the, the role that my dad would play. The job that he had and the job potentially that he might transition to. And him writing this book and then publishing this book. And the timing of how it was going to play out. The book would have come available right before this event. Right before the event was to take place. And I remember my dad when he finished the project. We, we, we knew what he was doing. We knew he had been writing. And I remember him deciding not to print the book immediately. I didn't understand it. I, I said, why? You're done. You're finished. Let's get this thing printed and, and, and get it out there and let people buy it and read it. And you need to do it. And he said, no, I, I don't want to do that because he said, I think this, the timing of things here, I didn't write this book so that, you know, people would think I was writing it and the timing of it to come out so that you know, maybe the job that I was going to get or the thing that was going to happen, that it that people would perceive I was doing that to try to gain something out of it. And, and he said, I just think the perception of what, what might exist there would, would taint what my original motives are. My motives were pure in this process. I wanted to just write it, and, and I believe the Lord was guiding that process. And so I'm going to hold the book. I'm not going to print it right now. I'm going to wait until after the event takes place. We'll, we'll see what happens there. And then after it's done, then I'll get the book printed. And I'm sure I'm not doing a great job of explaining it because I'm trying to kind of honor the, the kind of the, the details of what was happening there. But I remember at 15 years old looking at my dad with a new sense of respect. There, there was something about the decision that he made that was so counterintuitive, almost countercultural, because he was saying there's something more important to me than to release this project. There's something more important to me than anyone ever reading the words that I've written down on paper. There's something more important to me. And he didn't have to say what it was that was more important because I understood, even at 15 years old, that what he was talking about was his integrity. He didn't want anyone to think something about him that was not true. He didn't want anybody to, to, to kind of attack his motives or to think that he was trying to manipulate a moment or, or a system that he was a part of. He didn't want anything like that to happen. And so he held this book project for several months after its completion. 
before releasing it. Now, maybe that doesn't, you know, kind of parallel into your universe and into your life. But I do think that there are moments, there are situations where we are confronted with the opportunity. We are given a choice of whether or not to do something. And if we are thinking through the lens of our integrity, sometimes we might make decisions and do things that are so counterintuitive to those around us, that seem so countercultural to the world that we live in. That anyone who has enough information about what could have been and then what you actually did may look at you and go, what in the world are you doing? Why don't you? No, there's nothing wrong with that. Nobody's going to think that. Or those closest to you who understand the dynamics of what's playing out in your life may look at you with a greater sense of respect because they understand that you are valuing, you are holding in the core of who you are. You are holding on to the integrity that you have. And I think all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, know that there probably have been moments in our own life, and for sure it's easier to point finger at others, and we see other people who have compromised their integrity to get some kind of short-term gain. I read recently that, and I think I retweeted it this week, so if you follow me on Twitter or Facebook, you may have seen this, but Pastor Craig Rochelle, who's a pastor out in Oklahoma, says this. He says, discipline is deciding that what you want most is more important than what you want now. Discipline. I would even say your integrity is centered on the idea that what I want most is more important than what I want now. If I can hold on to that principle, if I can allow that to be a guiding principle for my life, then I feel like for all of us, we would find ourselves less compromised we would find ourselves less in situations where others can look at us and go, wow, he, he or she, they compromise themselves to get a short-term gain, but in the long run, they don't realize what it's going to cost them. We see families that have been torn apart by unfaithfulness because someone decided that what they wanted now was more important than what they wanted most. We see financial issues. We see businesses fall apart. We see relationships jeopardized. Because people choose to compromise their integrity in the long run for something that seems appealing in a moment. Today is probably going to be uncomfortable. And I don't apologize. Today we're talking about integrity. Integrity is far greater than a book project from a dad of a 15-year-old growing up in a home. But it's a part of it. Integrity is far more than just how you handle money. Integrity is far more than just how you handle relationships, how you manage your home, how you manage your marriage, how you interact with your children, how you work on your job. Integrity is everything that you do because it is who you truly are. We've been in a series called Building a Life of Influence. We've been looking at the story of a man by the name of Nehemiah who's found in the Old Testament. And we've looked at a lot of things in this story already over the last few weeks. Next week we conclude this series. But Nehemiah, the book and the man, is really about rebuilding the walls in the city of Jerusalem. And we've looked at the team of people that it took to accomplish that. We've looked at the passion, the burden that Nehemiah had to accomplish this great thing. And we've looked at the courage that it took to accomplish this great thing. And today we're going to jump to the very end of the story. So if you have your Bible, flip with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. 
Nehemiah chapter 13. It's the last chapter in the book of Nehemiah. If you get to the book of Esther or the book of Psalms somewhere in there, you need to flip back to the left a little bit because you've gone too far. Nehemiah chapter 13. Let me just tell you what's been accomplished. The walls have been rebuilt. The walls are now up. The team of people that Nehemiah surrounded himself with to accomplish this great thing have done everything that they were asked as it related to rebuilding the walls. And then Nehemiah gives us in chapter, I believe it's like 10 and 11 and 12, he kind of gives us then a summary of who was living in that area and who was performing some of the various tasks and who the priests were and the Levites and the different tribes and the different people. And then we get to Nehemiah 13. And let me just tell you where we're going today, okay? We're pretty much going to read this entire chapter together. So some of you are now flipping and looking and going, wow, that's a lot. You're kind of scrolling in your your Bible app on your phone and you're like, wow, that's a lot. Please don't tune me out, all right? We're going to stop and talk a little bit and interact some. But we're going to look at this entire text because I really do think that this is the best way to approach this subject. Nehemiah chapter 13. Here we go. Beginning in verse 1. On that day, we don't know what day. Don't know if it's Thursday or Tuesday or Wednesday or any day, but on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite, these are different groups of people other than the Israelites, God's chosen people. None of those people, the Ammonites or the Moabites, should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam. If you've ever heard of Balaam's donkey, this is what we're talking about. Hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. And when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of a foreign descent. Now stop right here. When he talks about, when Nehemiah references that they read from the book of Moses, we are talking about really some of the beginning parts of the Old Testament that you have. But he's reading some of the law that exists there. And, and the specific reference that he's talking about here when he says that no Ammonite or Moabite should be admitted into the assembly of God is found in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy 23 references the way that some of the Israelite uh, people or how the Israelite people are supposed to interact with some of the other people that they're surrounded by. And so the Ammonites and the Moabites were not supposed to be a part of the assembly of God. They should not be a part of the gathering of God's people when they get together to worship God. And the reason that's given here is because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Now, if you reference that story, you're looking at Numbers chapter 22 and 23. Now, this is not a history lesson. I'm just trying to make sure you know where we're headed here, okay? Numbers 22 and 23, you had the Israelite people passing through. And when the Moabite and Ammonite kings saw this humongous group of people traveling through, they looked out and they thought, okay, those people are more than our people. Their God is working for them, working with them, helping them accomplish this and and accomplish safe travel. We're not going to give them food and water for their journey. We're going to curse them and we're going to ask God to... to, that, you know, ask our gods and, and try to accomplish this thing by suppressing them and, and, and defeating them. And so because of that, then in Deuteronomy 23, in the law that was given, the Ammonites and Moabites could no longer be a part of any of the Israelite assembling of God's people because they tried to curse God's people. And so this is what's being referenced here. And then what we read there in verse 3 is that when the people, the people that were listening in that day in Jerusalem to the law, of, the, the law of Moses that's being read, the book of Moses, when that was being read, they heard this and they did great. They excluded from Israel all those who were of foreign descent. So they listened to the law and then they pushed out all the people. They said, hey, you can't be here anymore. So they pushed out all of the people 
from foreign descent. Let's keep reading now in verse 4. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. So let's stop for just a second. Eliashib, if you were really paying attention last week, was the guy that we referenced from Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. He was the high priest. And Eliashib was the guy that, with the other priest, was responsible to rebuild the sheep gate when they were rebuilding the wall. And they were responsible for rebuilding the sheep gate because the sheep were part of the sacrificed animals. And so the priest would be responsible to make sure that the gate could be used so that the sacrificial animals could come through that gate and be sacrificed to God to allow the people to be in right standing. And at that point, when I'm reading Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, I'm thinking Eliashib's a pretty cool guy. I'm thinking he's the high priest. Surely God is with him. God is for him. He's pure. He's holy. He's upright before God. But here's what we're about to read. Verse 4, he says that he had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. So imagine that we're in not a school, but in a church building. And this is our building, which will happen in the very near future. We're praying and believing, right? And we'll have a building and we'll have closets. And we'll have rooms where we store a bunch of stuff. And 10 years from now, we'll go into those closets. And we won't know why anybody put the stuff in there that they put 10 years ago. But it's still there. That happens in your... No, it doesn't happen in your house. Okay, just in our house. But in the church, that happens too. And here's what happened. Even in this day, they had storerooms. But they didn't just put random stuff in there. In the storerooms, they stored the things that were necessary for the house of God. And this is what it said. Eliashib had been put in charge of those storerooms. Now listen to this. He was closely associated with a guy named Tobiah. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles. And also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, the musicians and the gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. Now, so let's set the stage. We're going to stop again. There's a storeroom where the people would store in those rooms the tithes and the offerings of grain and the wine and the olive oil and the contributions that were given by the people so that those who worked in the church could not, they wouldn't have to go out to the fields and gather food. They could stay fully devoted to the work of God. And so they stored that stuff in these but here's what Eliashib did. He was closely connected. He was kind of buddy-buddy with a guy named Tobiah. And what he did is Tobiah, this, this guy that we're going to read about again in a second, he says, listen, Tobiah, here's what I'll do. I'll give you a room that you can kind of have as like a green room, like before we gather to worship God. You can just hang out in there. You can use that as an office if you want to. You, you can kind of come in and gather friends together and just kind of hang out in that space. Whatever you want to do, you just do it in that room. And we'll take all of the articles that are supposed to be a part of the temple. And all of the contributions that have been given for the priests. And we're going to take all that out and we'll move it to a different closet. Or we'll store it in the garage for a little while and just keep the garage door down so nobody can see all of our junk. We'll move all that out of the way and we'll give you the room where that stuff is supposed to be stored. Which doesn't sound like a big deal until you know who Tobiah is. Tobiah was a guy that we've already referenced in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10. Tobiah was a guy that when Nehemiah asked the king for permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls, he goes back and then pretty quickly after his arrival, we find out that there's opposition to his effort. And this is what it says in Nehemiah 2, verse 10. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Tobiah was an Ammonite official, which may not seem like a big deal, except that we just read a verse where no Ammonite or Moabite is supposed to be anywhere in the assembling of God's people. But Tobiah had a, had a room 
in the assembly of God's people. The room that was supposed to store all of the stuff that had been given according to the law by the people to accomplish the purposes of God, they had moved that stuff out and they had given this Ammonite official that room to use for his own personal use. And not only, just because he's an Ammonite doesn't necessarily mean he's a bad guy, except that when he discovered, when he heard that Nehemiah had returned to rebuild the wall, he was upset about it. So this is not like Eliashib has a buddy that he's just given a room. He's got a buddy that he's given a room who deep down inside of him doesn't want the children of God, the people in Jerusalem, to accomplish the things that God wants them to accomplish. He's kind of buddy-buddy, but he's not in it for the same reasons. He's not wanting them to accomplish the purposes that they need to accomplish to rebuild the walls. When he heard about it, he was upset, except that he had a room inside the city, inside the temple, that was supposed to be the place where the stuff of God was housed. Verse 8. I, Nehemiah, was greatly displeased. And I love this. And I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. And I gave orders to purify the rooms and then put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions... Of, okay, let me just stop for a second. Because I'm I, this when I read the Bible, I try to make it as real and personal as I possibly can. I imagine one of those movies where somebody's mad at like the husband or the wife and they're throwing all their stuff out of the balcony. Right? Just throwing it out in the street. There's just like clothes fluttering, falling down to the road. I don't know if that's how this played out. But Nehemiah was ticked off when he heard that Tobiah had a room. And that that room was supposed to serve a different purpose. And so here's what he does. He walks into the room and he says, oh, this is yours? It's gone. Okay, I'm just about to hit somebody. And then he said, it went a little farther than I thought. He said, okay, that's not it. And now we're going to take Lysol and we're going to clean up this junk because your stuff shouldn't have been here. The stuff of God should have been here. You guys okay over here? Everybody all right? I think I hit Sean, but all right, that's all right. If anybody can play the guitar, we may need you to close the service in a minute because he can't feel his right hand anymore. Um... And so Nehemiah's ticked off. He takes all of Tobiah's stuff and throws it out and cleans it up and purifies that space. Let's keep reading. I'm sorry. That was an aside there. Then he put back into them the equipment of the house of God with grain offerings and the incense. I also learned, it's like Nehemiah's just finding out stuff that just makes him more angry and more angry and angrier or whatever that word would be. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. And that all the Levites and the musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So the, the stuff that was supposed to be stored in that room to make sure that the people that, could, that were supposed to be serving God in the temple there, they had to go out and get their own stuff because no one was actually giving any more the way they were supposed to into the temple so those people could have what they needed to have. He said, so, so I rebuked the officials and I asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And then I called them together and I stationed them at their post. And I'm going to butcher some of these names, but I want to read this. Verse 12. And all of Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil into the storms. Here's what I imagine happening. Words getting out that Nehemiah is on a hunt. And if you're not paying your tithes, which we don't do this here, but if you're not paying your tithes, we're coming to your house to collect your tithes. Right? We're going to get your bank account and we're going to do direct deposit tithes into the church storeroom. You understand? We're going to come by your house and pick up the 10% of grain that you owe. 
right? This is what I think words out. So everybody's like, oh, am I late? Is it Thursday already? Okay, here's mine. I just, I was sick yesterday. It snowed. I don't know if you know that. And we couldn't pass by the roads there. And, but we're here now. We've got our tithes. Please accept this and put it in the storeroom where it rightly belongs. And so Nehemiah's on a, on a hunt. And so everybody, all of Judah brought the tithes of grain and the new wine and the olive oil into the storerooms. And I put Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah, in charge of the storerooms. And I made Hanan son of Zakur, and the son of Madaniah their assistant. Listen to this, because they were considered trustworthy. And they were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. He purified the temple of God. And then he put trustworthy men in charge of maintaining its purity. He looked out across all the people, all the Levites... And he said, I'm not really sure how we got here, but we're going to fix it. And once we get it fixed, I want you and you and you and you to make sure that we never get back to this point again. And he took some trustworthy men and he stationed them at their post. And he said, you do the job that the law outlines that you, the Levites, are supposed to do because you're trustworthy. And here's the first thing that I think we need to know today. Integrity produces trust. People will believe you when they know they can trust you. People will believe you. You will have influence when they know that when you say something, you mean it. Nehemiah looked out across the landscape of the Levites and the people there in Jerusalem. And he said, I need someone who's going to do what the law actually says we're supposed to do. And you're the most trustworthy men I can find. So you come and do this job. I want to be the kind of man someone finds when they go looking for trustworthy people. Integrity produces trust. And this is not in my notes. But here's what I would say as a self-evaluation for all of us. If people don't trust you, there's probably a reason. If you want people to trust you and they don't, you need to look inside of you and see, am I a person that is trustworthy? When I say something, do I follow through? Do people know that my words hold value and they're not just frivolous words and conversation? Because when you begin cleaning house and you set as the priority integrity, people will begin looking at you as someone that can be trusted. And my dad told me a long time ago, I've now quoted him twice today, so this means something, I guess. He told me a long time ago when I was growing up, it's a bigger deal that people trust you than when they don't. It's a bigger deal when someone looks at you and says, I'm trusting you. With this. Than when they overlook you. Because they, they're not sure that they can. Integrity. Produces trust. Let's keep reading verse 15. In those days I saw people in Judah. Treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys. Together with wine and grapes and figs. And all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre, which was another region, another place just outside Jerusalem there. But they lived in Jerusalem. So the people from there but lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all other kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. 
And I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing that you're doing desecrating the Sabbath day? Now you remember, let's stop for a second. You remember that the Sabbath day is the day you're supposed to keep it holy. You're not supposed to do work. You're not supposed to sell goods. And so this is an important thing. And what's happened here is these people have begun doing business on the Sabbath. And Nehemiah is incredibly insulted by this. He says, what are you doing desecrating the Sabbath day? He's not talking to the outsiders that don't know the law. He's talking to the nobles of Judah. He's talking to his people who know the law. He says, you are better than this and you're compromising yourself for a few more dollars. Stop it. That's what he says. Didn't your ancestors do the same thing? So that our God brought all this calamity on us and this city. The reason we got here is because of what you're doing. Stop it. He says, now you're stirring up even more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. And when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. And I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. And listen to this. Once or twice, the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. And from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. I'm telling you, words getting out that Nehemiah's ticked off. <laughs> and then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. He said to the Levites, who were God's set-apart people, he says, listen, you are ignoring the fact that your people are compromising themselves by allowing goods and services to be exchanged on the Sabbath day. And so I'm going to fix it, and then you're going to maintain the purity of who we are. And so he told those people, don't you bring no more stuff in here. Don't you do it. I'm shutting the gates. If you stay outside the gates and wait until we open up the gates, I'm going to arrest you. Stay away from here. You come and do your business every other day, but not on the Sabbath. And then he put the Levites right there, and he said, you stand at the gate, and you maintain the Sabbath day. And here's the next thing that I think we all need to know about integrity And building a life of influence. Integrity is the result of courageous obedience. Shutting down business on the Sabbath cost the people of Jerusalem money. It cost them money. Their weekly take home was a little less. Because they're only doing business now six days a week. As opposed to when they used to do business seven days a week. But Nehemiah determined in his heart that it was more important... To be people of integrity and keepers of the law than to make a few extra dollars. And I think far too many people have compromised their integrity for those few extra dollars. And they don't realize that it will cost them way more than that in the long run. Integrity is about courageous obedience. We talked about courage two weeks ago. Being that you did what was right in every situation no matter the cost. And Nehemiah made a courageous decision to obey the law. And I believe in the end, it raised that level of integrity in God's people here. Let's finish up. Verse 23. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who were marrying women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. So we're talking about the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Ashdodites. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, which was a different god. Okay, I can imagine the righteous anger rising up in Nehemiah. Half of their children, the Israelite children, 
spoke the language of a different God. Or the language of one of the other peoples. And they did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Of their people. And I rebuked them and I called curses down on them. And I love this. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. This, we're done playing games here is what he's saying. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. And we have men at the, at the door. I'm just kidding. We don't. Okay. And I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons. Talking about those foreign people. You're not to give your daughters to marry their sons. Nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or even for yourself. Was it not because of the marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. But even he was led into terrible sin by foreign women. Women always get the blame, don't they, ladies? Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jodah, not Yoda, Jodah, Son of Eliashib, who we've already talked about, he had already compromised himself. So one of his sons, the high priest, was the son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite, who we already read about, was ticked off that Jerusalem was being rebuilt. The high priest and his family were so intermixed in the ridiculous relationships with the leaders of the people who did not want the best for God's people. And so this is what Nehemiah does. He says, so I drove him away from me. He looked at him. At, at Jodah, and he said, you just got to get away from me. If you stay close to me, I'm going to rip your hair out too. You just got to get away from me. And so here's the last thing that I think is important for us. Integrity may result in isolation. Integrity may result in isolation. That's not fun. But the reality is that when you decide to stand for what's right... You may look around and not see some people standing beside you. You may see when you take a stand that you're the only one standing. And there were people that said, listen, we'll stand right beside you. We'll be right there. We'll we'll fight the good fight with you. And you take a stand for what is right and to, to kind of hold to your integrity. And you say, we won't compromise ourselves anymore. We will stand for what's right. Won't we, folks? And you look around and there's crickets. You got nothing. Silence. There's no one standing beside you potentially. Nehemiah said to his people, listen, we have so intermixed ourselves with the people that God called us apart from. But now it's time to clean house. Take a stand for what's right. Separate yourself from the immorality that exists here. And when you do that, it may result in isolation. You may not be able to hang out with the same people that you've been hanging out with. If you want to be a person of integrity. Students. This one's difficult. Because everything that we're wired to do in middle school and high school and even college and even some... In our, in our young adult lives, every part of our fiber of our being is about finding acceptance. And finding someone not named mom and dad who thinks that we matter. Let me just say to you that if you want to be a person of integrity and you want to have a life that is influential beyond just a moment. 
some of the people that you're, gain, you're trying to gain acceptance from are the wrong folks. And to be a person of integrity, you probably have to be willing to stand alone some of the time. Integrity may result in isolation. The last two verses of this chapter. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign, and I assigned them duties, each to his own task. And I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. And then Nehemiah prays this simple prayer. He's prayed it twice in different words throughout this chapter. But he says, remember me with favor, my God. It's as if Nehemiah was saying to the Lord, I've taken a risk here. I've tried to be courageous. I've tried to make some hard calls. I've made some enemies in the process, including some of my own people. But God, ultimately, integrity may result in isolation. And even if nobody else is with me, I want you to be pleased with me, God. It's so cliche, it's, it's, it's almost corny, but it's the idea that Nehemiah is saying to God here, God, I'm living for this audience of one. I'm living to please you only if I don't please anybody else on the earth. I want to be a person of integrity here, Father. I want to be trustworthy. I want you to know that you can trust me. I may end up having to be by myself, but I want to be courageously obedient no matter what it's going to cost me. Here's what Nehemiah understood. And here's how you tie Nehemiah chapter 1 and the burden that he receives to Nehemiah chapter 13 and everything in between. Nehemiah understood that to restore Jerusalem and God's people, it had to be about more than rebuilding the external wall of the city. Because here's what happens. If you just rebuild the wall, the same corruption exists on the inside. The same people who stood shoulder to shoulder to rebuild the wall to protect them from their enemies did not realize that the greatest enemy that they had existed inside the wall, inside of their heart. Nehemiah reminded them that the reason the wall came down in the first place and the reason that the wrath of God was upon them is because of their disobedience. But they were so concerned and so on board to rebuild the external wall that it took the courage of Nehemiah to help them see they had to address the enemy within the wall. And here's the reality, I think, for most of us. We work so hard on the appearance of this, the external. We want people to look at us and see us and think that we've got it together and that we're somebody and that we love God and we never have stress and we trust God in everything. But on the inside of us, potentially, there is some corruption. There's an enemy within that we have not eradicated. And we're so intent on cleaning up and rebuilding the wall because we think that our greatest enemy is out there trying to get in here. And really, our greatest enemy is in here, controlling our heart. If you've ever done any counseling, you realize that 
all of those prodding leading questions are not about you changing the external action that you do. It's about getting to the root of the issue to determine why do I do these things? What's my motivation to do these things? Why do I do? And you just constantly, they're constantly uncomfortably kind of pushing in, digging into the inside of who you are to try to get to the root of the problem. Because they realize what Nehemiah realized, that it's not about cleaning up the outside. You have to begin on the inside. You have to make sure that the things that are inside match the things that are outside. And ultimately, this is not about foreign people for the people of God. This is about the original calling of God for his people. The original calling for God's people was that they would establish themselves among the other groups of people. And the way that they lived would be what set them apart. Not a wall. The reason that God gave the children of Israel the law in the first place was so that they would live in such a countercultural, counterintuitive way among these pagan people that existed in the world, that these people outside would look at them living among them and say, there is something different about the way that they live. But ultimately what happened is that they started living more and more and more like their neighbors, but they put up a wall to set themselves apart. Instead of living In a way that set them apart. Nehemiah understood that if they did not purify the inside. That eventually that wall would come back down again. So here's just a couple of questions that I have today. For all of us to evaluate who we are. In our pursuit of integrity. Okay. Question one. Do you value integrity? Or image? Do I value integrity or image? Here's another way to phrase this. This won't be on the screen. Here's a couple couple follow-ups. Am I more concerned with my actual relationship with God? Or the appearance of my relationship with God? Am I more concerned with the authenticity of my worship? Or the appearance of my worship? Am I willing to do the right thing even when I know that no one is watching? Or do I only do the right thing when I know someone is watching? Do I value integrity or image more? Question two. Do those who know me the best respect me the most? Do those who know me the best... Respect me the most. If not, this is probably a sign that you are building your life based on the perception of others. And not those that God has entrusted to you. If the people that live under your roof don't respect you more than the people on your job, you've got it wrong. You got it backwards. And I do too. If those close enough to you can see through your facade, then there's an integrity issue. There's a heart issue. You're rebuilding a wall, but there's corruption on the inside. 
There's something that doesn't match what you're trying to project. Question three. What is something that you are doing or have done that may or, not, may or may not be sin, but you pray that no one will ever find out? What's something that you are doing now or you have done and it may or may not be sin, but you pray it never comes out? I would categorize anything that just popped in your head as the beginnings of compromise and the seeds of sin. Because one of the greatest tools of the enemy, one of the greatest tricks of the devil is to get you from being comfortable walking around a garden naked with the Lord to covering up and hiding. That's what he did to Adam and Eve. And what he does to you and I is he allows us just to, he prompts us, he prods us, he, he encourages us. We, if you'll just compromise a little bit, nobody will ever know. That's not even sin. That's not even a big deal. But then what happens is you do that and then you find yourself in a place where you pray that nobody ever finds out because there's no way for you to explain away the action that you just took. It just sounds bad. It just doesn't pass the eyeball test. Somebody were to hear it, they would question who you are, and you know it. What are you doing right now, or what have you done in the past that it may or may not be sin, but you hope to God nobody ever finds out you did it? It's the beginning of compromise, probably, and it's probably the seeds of some sin in your life. And I would encourage you right here to get that out in the open with somebody. Let light get in that spot, let fresh air get in that spot, and begin to work on healing. So, do you value integrity or image? Do those who know you the best respect you the most? And what's something that may or may not be sin? But you pray nobody ever finds out about. If you answered some of these questions honestly, it's probably that you have some work to do, myself included. If, if, I, if I answer these questions and I realize there's things I'm hiding or I realize there's some issues there where those that know me the best don't respect me the most... Or I realize that I'm valuing the image that I'm projecting more than the integrity on the inside of me. Then I got to go to work a little bit. Not to change the external here. Not to fill the cavity, but to realize that the things I'm eating are deteriorating my teeth, right? The, the root of the problem, the issue at hand here. Not just to, just to cover up the issue, but to deal with the motivation here. And so I wrote a couple of these things down. Way more notes than normal, but for me, I just didn't want to forget these. Maybe at the root of some of the external things that I've done to compromise myself is my need to please people. Maybe that image projection is just making sure that I don't let people down. And in a healthy way, that's not a big deal. But when it, when it corrupts who I am and it compromises me, it becomes an issue. Maybe at the root of some of the things that I've done is some pain and some hurt. And so I project some things. I do some things out of that hurt and out of that pain that compromises who I am. Maybe it's about guilt or shame. Some things that I've done in the past and I've never really dealt with that guilt or shame. And so those things cause me to compromise who I am and live some things in parts of my life in secret. Maybe it's unforgiveness, my own or someone else's that has just continued to eat away at me. And inside of me, there's a root of some of these things and it's stirring up some things and it's, it's eating away at my integrity. God has never been as concerned about the external. It always starts on the inside. 
he always starts with the heart. Right? Jesus said in his first major sermon, he said, listen, if your eye is causing you to sin, just cut it out. The external doesn't matter. Your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. I want to work on the inside of you. I want your heart. I want your soul. I want your mind. I desire to be a person of integrity. And I want that for you. And here's what I have found in my life as we attempt to build a life of influence. The people that are most influential in my life are the people with the most impeccable integrity. I think that's the way it should be. The people that have the most influence, truly influence, I'm not just talking about some superficial influence they possess. The people that have sole influence on me are integrity-filled individuals that I know I can trust because I know they're pursuing after God. They're courageously obedient. They are trustworthy and they are not afraid to stand alone for what's right. I want to be like that. I want you to be like that. I want us to be people of influence because we're people of integrity. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. And I want you just to think about the three questions that I asked. Are you more concerned with image or integrity? Do you value one or the other of those more? Do those who know you the best respect you the most? And what's something that you've done or you're doing that you pray nobody ever finds out, whether it's sin or not? And right now in this moment, with nobody looking around, if you would say, yeah, I mean, I've got some of that stuff I've got to deal with right now. I want to be a person of integrity and I've got to address some things on the inside of me. I'm I'm not going to start by building the wall. I'm not going to put on this great facade. I'm going to start at the heart of the issue, the root of the issue. I'm I'm going to just ask God to dig some things out of me, maybe that have been entrenched in me for a long time. And today I want it to start. Would you just lift your hand? Thank you so much. You can put it right back down. There are hands up all over the room. I pray for every person in this room. It just takes a moment to violate our integrity, to compromise ourselves. And I pray for myself, my family, every individual in this room, every family that's represented from the youngest to the oldest, that God, you would help us to be people of influence because we are people of integrity. Lord, I pray for every hand that just went up in this room. There were so many. That as we evaluate our hearts, we realize there's some things where maybe we've compromised ourselves. Maybe we've given up. Maybe we've got some root issues we've got to address. But right now, God, we are praying that today begins the process of being people of integrity, courageously obedient, trustworthy, willing to stand alone if it comes to that. But God, it's not in this room, we're all pursuing the same thing. Let us stand together in pursuit of integrity. It's one of the joys of being a part of the body of Christ. 
family of God. And I pray right now for every person in this room. If it's sin, I pray now that they would experience the forgiveness that you tell us is a free gift from you. God, if, if right now it's a violation of something they know is, 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 they know it's wrong, I pray right now that you would help them to correct it, make some tough decisions, maybe have hard conversations, but right now they would know that you're going to walk with them into those difficult conversations. That God, they're willing to pay the price of the consequences of the errors of their past to make sure that moving forward they are everything that you desire them to be. So they're going to walk into their boss's office tomorrow and admit some things or call some things to light. They're going to do it with wisdom. They're going to pray for your strength and wisdom and discernment to to do it. But God, they're going to do what's right if you call them to that. They're willing today, right now. They're going to have some hard conversations over lunch today or in the car or at the house. There's going to be some specific soul searching. They're going to find a friend to admit some things and confess some things to because they want to be people of integrity today, God. Right now, I pray against any tool of the enemy to discourage them or to keep them from doing what they know is in their heart right now to pursue you with full-out abandon and passion. We pray for strength. And God, we are reminded of the song that we just sung, that you have never left us, never once to deal with these things alone. But God, you're faithful to walk with us today and into our tomorrows. I pray now, God, that you would help us to live out your commands. To eradicate evil out of our lives and to get rid of compromise and pursue you with integrity. Because it's what you're calling us to be. In Jesus' name we pray.